people want to work for a company that has a sense of purpose and meaning and positive impact in the world. And that is what will attract prospective employees to join. The compensation is certainly a consideration uh, and it needs to be fair and equitable, but money is not going to buy people's hearts and minds and souls, but purpose will certainly have that opportunity to engage the full human being and not just the bank account. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Simon Sinek, and it is, customers will never love a company until the employees love it first. Our guest today, Erin Moran, has dedicated her career to helping people have the best possible workplace. She's the Chief Culture Officer for Danny Myers Union Square Hospitality Group, overseeing an organizational culture that is a standout in its industry. USHG runs some of the most popular and well-known restaurants in New York City, such as Gramercy Tavern, Blue Smoke, Daily Provision, and Union Street Cafe, and is renowned for both its culture and its service. Aaron, welcome. I'm excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast today. Thanks, Bob. Really happy to be here. So how did you get started in your career? I'd be, particularly be interested to hear about your first job. I found that a lot of people who are passionate about culture uh, ended up learning that the hard way. Um, well, actually, I think the, one of the primary reasons why I got into this field uh, was because of some conversations that I had with my parents as a child, as strange as that might seem, because neither one of my parents uh, had college degrees, and therefore they were quite limited in terms of their professional opportunities. And um, they described really terrible work environments uh, where yeah. they weren't treated with respect or provided opportunities. And very early on, I made the decision, even as a child, I didn't know what a great place to work was or what a culture was, but I said to myself that I wanted to work for a company where I felt trusted and respected and where I could thrive. And then as I got older and started to formulate my professional skills, I decided not only did I want to be in a company that treated people well, I wanted to dedicate my professional career to helping companies to become healthy, thriving uh, environments for their people. Yeah, so that that a lot of purpose comes from an early place, and that's interested how, yeah. how how it motivated you. So, how were your early jobs? Where did they end up being decent places to work, bad places to work, good places to work? <laughs> well, my very first job was in a snowball stand when I was eleven years <laughs> old. So, I don't know that that did a lot to. to <laughs> how, about the, how about the first job that had benefits? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Um, so I worked for Anderson Consulting, and I, I thought it was a really, really great place to work. It certainly um, helped me to uh, build really strong skills. They have an extraordinary training and development program, yeah. and I really appreciated that experience. All right. Well, before joining Union Square Hospitality Group, I know you spent almost a decade at Great Place to Work, studying the culture of organizations who are on the 100 Best Companies list. Can you give us a little insight into the methodology and how you conducted that research and what your, what your role was there? Sure. So um, 
the way that the research is conducted is that the employees of those companies are essentially the ones who are voting on um, which companies should be on that list, meaning that we deployed an employee survey and we asked the employees to rate um, their experiences in the organization. And then based on those scores, we would uh, create the list of the 100 best companies to work for. So it was primarily driven by the employees themselves, since they're the experts in what that experience feels like, right? And my role, I started out as a consultant with a portfolio of clients who I was advising on how to strengthen their workplace cultures while I was researching and studying uh, the best companies. Then I went into the international operations for several years. And by the time that I left, I was the executive vice president running the U.S. business. And what in your time there, what commonalities did you find? I mean, you met with a lot of these companies. What commonalities did you find in the companies that really had these top cultures? What did they do and what didn't they do? I always find both of those are interesting. It's really interesting because the sexy stuff that the magazine loves to write about and that people love to read about are all of the perks and benefits, you know, with Google and the lava lamps and the beanbag chairs and the ping pong tables. That's not (laughs) what it's about. Um, There is no amount of lava lamps that you can put in or summer Fridays that's going to create a healthy, vibrant, inspiring work environment. The reality, the common thing is that there's high levels of trust, right? So you trust the people that you work for, you trust the people that you work with. And when you have high levels of trust, then people are willing to go above and beyond, to take risks, to work really collaboratively, and to achieve extraordinary things. So that was the the largest common theme. But trust, as we know, is not something that can be mandated. You can't have like a, you know, a policy and a handbook that says effective immediately. <laughs> Everyone's going to trust one another, right? So yeah. while it is a simple notion, it is incredibly complex to execute on. The things that companies did not do is that they did not shy away from embracing challenging decisions or conversations. Um, and a lot of companies, I think, that struggle with having healthy cultures shy away from those types of things, delivering tough news or, you know, not wanting to scare people with the realities of operational challenges. Yeah. So the trust, I mean, we could dig into that in in a couple of places, but does that correlate with open book management, just generally more open policies and processes and philosophies all across the company? Yeah, I think um, that there is certainly a level of transparency that the best companies have. I'd also say that there's just a lot more, it's going to sound kind of crazy, but vulnerability, right? You can't have a high level of trust without having a component of vulnerability. And when there's transparency, leadership is choosing to be a little vulnerable, to be a little bit more exposed by sharing more information. And the impact of those choices, more often than not, is that it increases the levels of trust. Um, It's hard to trust someone that you've never had any kind of experience, any element of vulnerability. And so that's kind of what helps to drive those high levels of trust. And and what about values? Did that come into it? Uh, Certainly a core set of common values that were in place throughout the entire uh, employee life cycle, meaning that they weren't like corporate values that were on a website or just on a poster. 
but that uh, the companies hired based on those values. They promoted based on those values. They exited people who did not demonstrate those values, right? Um, That kind of theme and thread throughout the entire employee life cycle is absolutely vital. And was this always top down? Like, did you ever see a great company or a great team who could do this where they really didn't have the support of the leadership at, at the top? You know, I can't really think of an example of one. And I don't know that I'd say that it's top down as much as if the most senior leaders of the organization aren't fully bought into this concept and this commitment, then everything else that kind of that next team down tries to do is just not going to be as as successful because ultimately the frontline employees will understand that disconnect and they will know that the senior leaders aren't walking the talk and it'll just put everything else into question. So I get asked this question a lot and I'm, I'd be curious for your answer. So someone comes to you, you're working with them and they say, Aaron, you know, maybe I heard you speak. I heard about this culture. Like, I want to do this stuff for my team and I would be a great leader, but, you know, management or whatever, they're not really interested in that. Like, what should I do? Like, what, how, do you, how do you answer when someone asks you something like that? Well, I think you can create pockets of great cultures. So as an individual manager, the thing that I would just focus that person on doing is um, being trustworthy, right? So focusing on the actions and interactions with their team that builds a perception of trustworthiness, investing in the one-on-one conversations with each team member, showing care and compassion um, and thoughtfulness in those conversations, providing feedback and investing in that person's growth and development, and just focusing on the building of the of the strong relationships with the team members, um, setting clear expectations and helping people understand how they're delivering relative to those performance expectations. You can create a really high-performing, high-trust team, even in the context of some broader dysfunction, if you will. And I do think that that is in the control of an individual manager, even if the senior leaders aren't necessarily bought into the, the structural commitment. Right. And, and I know when you give people back their scores, I think sometimes the companies apply and they're, they're surprised to see that they're not doing as, as well. And, and I think you guys would offer advice. So when you did advise companies on how to improve their culture and trust, like what was the starting point for them? I'm curious whether... I mean, it's probably very telling whether companies were receptive to the kind of feedback they get or did they get a little defensive uh, about these things, which probably tells you a lot of things in itself about how successful they're going to be. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I think um, the common first reaction when the scores are not really favorable is one that is defensive. And I've heard a lot of times, well, they're wrong about that. <laughs> Meaning like the employees are wrong about their, you know, their perceptions, yeah. <laughs> um, which is hilarious, right? But <laughs> you can be wrong about reality. You can't be wrong about perception, I think, right? That's exactly, exactly. <laughs> and what they mean to say, I believe oftentimes is that they never intended to create that perception. Oftentimes, Leaders are very well intended. They do want to do the right thing. It's not the question of the intention. It is more the question of the action being consistent with the intention and creating a perception that is aligned with the intention. Um, And so that's kind of the, the stuff that we would 
unpack a little bit. Um, you know, unintentional mixed messages, which is as a manager, I could say, I respect uh, work-life balance and people taking time to, to do what they need to. And then at the same time, sending emails at midnight to team right. members or scheduling calls on weekends, right? So we're ne never taking a vacation themselves or, or, or never taking a vacation, right? So what are those unintentional mixed messages that we send and and then trying to align the intention with the action and ultimately what what the perception is interesting so did you have people who really like they applied and they thought they were going to be like a hundred and they were like a 10 i mean really like they were just really really blind to the reality at their company yes <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. um particularly if they had not gone through a process to right. collect feedback from employees before. Um, that's usually when we saw people get really shocked with the results. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned one before. I think there's a couple misconceptions about great cultures and what makes a great culture. You, you said one of my favorite before, which is like, I think Silicon Valley has sort of corrupted the perception of <laughs> culture that it is just, it is not foosball table and ping pong and baristas. And sometimes that is there to cover up you know, the 140 hour work weeks. And I remember yep. someone joined a law firm and they told me that, you know, they did physicals in, in the office, you know, so that people didn't even have to like get out of their desk to get a flu shot. Like that really, that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that was more about them not leaving. I think another yeah. one in my book is that I think people think that these companies with great cultures are sort of everyone's kumbaya and, and they mm -hmm. don't, you know, they're not high performing and they don't make tough decisions. So are there, are there other conceptions you think that people have about a, a company with a great culture? Yeah, I think um, one of them is around compensation because of the Silicon Valley nature of what we've been reading about for so long. People, I think, believe that some of the best companies uh, out there offer the best compensation packages. And that's not actually factual. And it's actually not allowing companies to win the war for talent, meaning that approximately 95% of college graduates would decline an offer that has higher compensation and accept an offer that has lower compensation if the lower compensation offer is connected with a mission-driven or purpose-driven organization. So people want to work for a company that has a sense of purpose and meaning and positive impact in the world. And that is what will attract prospective employees to join, the compensation is certainly a consideration uh, and it needs to be fair and equitable, but money is not going to buy people's hearts and minds and souls, but purpose will certainly have that opportunity to engage the full human being and not just the bank account. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, 
but it's a great looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, I think you've probably read Dan Pink's book, Drive, about, uh, right? I mean, that that was the playbook for me of our culture, (laughs) but autonomy, (laughs) mastery, and purpose in that, you know, people, you need money up to a point because you have needs Mm -hmm. and safety. But at some point, I actually say, like, if you're thinking about employees who will move for that extra $5,000 or that's really their primary motivation, they'll just do it again for the extra $5,000, right? They're not not the type of people you're likely to keep. So. Again, a lot of, a lot of firms have to pay that high price as a tax <laughs> because yeah 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 and and I do think that sometimes um, that uh, companies do offer more competitive compensation packages because they're making up and overcompensating for a lack of substance or meaning or purpose um, or connection or inspiration. Yeah, so you know, I sort of have boss envy, as I think I told you uh, when we met. I mean, your your, your boss is <laughs> is Danny Meyer, who's really considered one of the great leaders of our generation. Uh, in addition yeah. to to founding all these restaurants and USHGs, also mm-hmm. somehow on the side, he he started Shake Shack. Yeah, I'd love to hear what it's like to work for him, and and how would you sort of describe his philosophy and and how you merge your sort of two philosophies to build uh, the culture at your company. Sure. So um, I'll share with you that there are certain books that have been written by individuals and I've read them and I've really subscribed to the concepts and the philosophy. And then I've met the author and there sometimes can be a disconnect between what has been (laughs) written about in the book and who that person is. And I've worked with Danny now for six years and prior to that, uh, about two years in a consulting capacity, and he is the person that he writes about in the book, right? So there is no gap between what one would perceive as you're reading the book and who he is as a human being. He is deeply, deeply committed to the philosophies that he writes about in the book, and he leads our company in alignment with those philosophies meaning the virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality that he writes about, how we prioritize our stakeholders and how we really want to create shared emotional and economic prosperity for all of our stakeholders. He's deeply committed to those concepts. He stays awake at night thinking about 
new ways to advance the virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality. And he challenges all of us as leaders to do the same. And he creates a safe space for us to continue to innovate and ask the question, whoever wrote the rule, and to push ourselves to the next level to see if there are new ways for us to advance the virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality. You mentioned your stakeholders a few times. Can you, I'd love to hear who are they and then how do you balance them? What is the rank order if you have one? Um, well, I wouldn't say the rank order because it's a, it's a cycle. So it looks like a circle, right? Yeah. And it starts with though, taking care of each other. So, you know, our team members, we, we want to be taking care of one another because when we're taking care of one another, we are then able to uh, take even better care of our guests. So guests being the second stakeholder. Third stakeholder is our communities. Fourth stakeholder, suppliers. And fifth stakeholder is our investors. And it's a cycle because when we are activating the, this virtuous cycle and all of our stakeholders, their lives are getting better as a result of our work and we're running really profitable and healthy businesses, then we're able to take those profits and put them back into taking even better care of each other and then continuing to fuel that cycle. What do you do when a decision that you're looking at really, maybe you see how it, it is incongruous between one stakeholder and another, or you're not sure how it'll affect one stakeholder or another? I mean, I think that um, the virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality is an underpinning of our business, and it is, it's a guiding principle, if you will. Yeah. And of course, we are, we are for-profit business. Yeah. And so there are incredibly difficult decisions that we have to make every single day. Yeah. And um, what we use to help guide us, we have four family values hospitality, excellence, entrepreneurial spirit, and integrity. And so we use those four family values to help guide us to make those tough decisions. Yeah. And of course, we, we have to. There's always a trade-off when you're making a difficult decision. Absolutely. No, and I, I, I just interviewed someone who, Gary Ridge, who's the CEO of WD-40, who said it mm -hmm. something he, that I'd, I've heard before, but he said, people are safe making decisions within our core values, which I thought was a really interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Very similar. Well said. All right. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Aaron. In 2004, Mike Zani and his partner started a search fund. A search fund is where you raise money with a leadership team already in place and then look for a company to buy. Well, here's what Mike learned the first time he bought a company. Bob, we were really pretty good at the strategy stuff and we were good at the financial side of things, knowing what to pay for a company. But when we finally bought the company, figuring out how to get the right people in the right roles and managing them was really hard, surprisingly hard, and we sucked at it. So Mike and his team used the predictive index to help them fix their people problems. Then when they bought and ran two more companies, they used the predictive index again. In fact, they became so enamored with the predictive index that you guessed it, they bought the company. Yeah, we bought a 60-year-old technology company. I have to pinch myself. You know, I, I get to run a company that helps people solve their people problems. Designing teams, hiring, inspiring managers. And when it comes down to it, almost all business problems come down to people problems. So if you're trying to figure out how to get more out of your people, I'd recommend you go to predictiveindex.com slash elevate and request a demo of their product. 
That's predictiveindex.com slash elevate. All right, and we're back. So there's a quote that I've always loved, which says, what the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does at the end. However, that is counterbalanced by being early is, is hard. I'd love to talk about, uh, and you and I had spoken about this before, I'm fascinated by it, but uh, hospitality included a program at, at your restaurants where you're working to not accept tips and the prices are higher so that employees can be paid higher rates instead. So what, what was the why behind this? What led to the, the sort of pilot of the system? Sure. So I don't know if this is a well-known fact or not, but in restaurants, as a result of the uh, tipping regulation, the folks that are in our kitchens and preparing the dishes and the the culinary experience earn one-third of the folks that are on the other side of the kitchen door that are serving the food and creating the guest experience. So that huge gap did two things. The first is that it really tugged at our integrity because uh, we really want to focus on taking great care of everyone, not just the folks that are on the um, the dining room floor. And having that gap didn't feel fair or right for us. Um, and the second um, was that we were seeing a lot of culinary talent move from the kitchen into the dining room because they could earn 300% more. <laughs> Right. So that's the why behind. Um, And you might be asking the question, well, why didn't you just pay your kitchen team members uh, more money? And had we done that, uh, we would have had to have raised our menu prices in order to stay essentially profit neutral. Then our uh, dining room colleagues would have immediately gotten a raise because you're tipping on your overall bill. (laughs) So the only way to start to close that gap was for us to eliminate tipping and take more control over the wages of our team members. And so that's the why behind the what. And you guys also did some research, I know, because it's very cultural, you know, particularly how we tip in the U.S. I know people mm-hmm. from Europe mm-hmm. and other cultures get very frustrated at it and don't, don't understand mm-hmm. it. But yeah. it's kind of like yeah. anything. We just do it without understanding why we do it or where it came from. So mm-hmm. can you share a little bit of that as you guys kind of dug into this? So we did not realize this when we started to started the process of eliminating tipping, but tipping is actually rooted in post-slavery. And tips means to, to ensure promptitude, T-I-P. And uh, the way that it worked was that after the, the um, Civil War and when slavery was obviously no longer permitted, what would happen was that um, former slaves would be spending time looking for jobs at uh, railways or at hotels, and white people would give them a coin for whatever they had done, right? Because they weren't allowed to do it for free any longer. So it was a practice that was actually brought over from Europe in a post-slavery era. So we didn't realize that until we had actually eliminated tipping, and then some researchers uh, reached out to us and and let us know that that is the origin. And the other interesting thing is that the federal tipped wage is $2.12 an hour. Um, And that changes sometimes by different states, but at the federal level, and when the law was originally passed, to establish what the tipped minimum wage was in 1887, it was one dollar. 
So it is 2018, and we've only increased the tipped minimum wage at the federal level, $1.13. And that is so crazy. Right. And, and look, at, we're, if we're being honest, and this is a little less in the era of credit cards, right? But for a long time, too, it was just it was a tax dodge, right? Where people were, oh, were I, you, were getting, you were getting tipped in cash and you weren't <laughs> paying taxes on it. Exactly. Exactly. So you looked at this. This is a big cultural change and, and in terms of both for the staff and for the customers. And I'd, I'd love to hear, like, how is it going on on both fronts? What's what's been easier than expected and what's been harder? Maybe nothing's been easier. Uh, I, I was just going to say, I don't know that there's been anything that's been easier than, than we expected. Uh, lots of things that were, were harder. You know, I'll start with, with, our, with our people, the impact on our people. That we definitely lost a lot of amazing, talented people um, throughout the transition because the changes that we made didn't work for them and what their needs were. So while overall our retention levels have increased, I don't want to gloss over the fact that we did lose some amazing people in the process. Uh, We have, however, been able to attract a completely different profile of a candidate because what we have built into hospitality included is a really uh, fair and transparent process for uh, professional growth and development as well as transparency around potential earnings. So we are attracting um, individuals who are more interested in a career in hospitality, and that has been really exciting for us. With our guests, I'd say that initially they have sticker shock, right? They're looking at our menu prices. They don't fully understand this cutesy term, hospitality included, right? And they would be, you know, comparing what a similar dish in a different restaurant would cost and kind of saying, huh, it's a little bit more spendy than I was expecting. And then after the, um, the experience and they get their bill and they look at it and there's no line for tipping, there's this immediate, wow, that was a huge value. And especially they're grateful of not having to do that crazy mental gymnastics. Yeah. Um, especially if they had a glass or two of wine, right, around what to add to the line for the tip. Um, so the feedback at the end of the experience is, has been very favorable. However, that initial sticker shock is, um, is there for first-time guests that are experiencing it. And did you do it across all restaurants or did you pilot in a few of them? We have one business still to transition. Outside of that, we have transitioned every other business and we've opened nine businesses since we started with hospitality included. And uh, we had originally thought that it was going to take us a year to transition all of our businesses and we are in the fourth year. So um, that's definitely one of our lessons learned. And we, we just needed to slow down the implementation to ensure that we were being as thoughtful and as intentional as we possibly could. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. 
hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, and another point I hadn't thought of that I know you said, which is really interesting if you think of performance management, because it puts you, I, don't, I can't think of another business that had this, but your, your customers in some ways were determining the compensation of your employees rather than, than your team or their managers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And just to take that a step further, if your customer is treating you disrespectfully, regardless of what that is, whether it's sexual harassment, whether you feel that he or she is, is demonstrating racism or just blatant disrespect in a tipping environment, because that person is responsible for your earnings, you are more likely to put up with it, right? To yeah. not say anything. In our situation now, our team members feel a lot more empowered to call a manager over and say, you know what, this interaction did not sit well with me because they no longer have to just put up with anything in order for them to get their earnings. Yeah, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's number two, once said, show me the incentive and I'll tell you the behavior. And I think, <laughs> you know, that, that I think that's an interesting and unintended consequence in this in this case, right? Yeah. Where yeah, yeah. You're, you're right, your compensation was just determined by the luck of your table in some cases. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So have you seen any copycats yet? Or are people too scared? <laughs> Well, I think I think a couple of oh, I know a couple of restaurants have tried it and then uh, gone back. And, uh, you know, what what we've always said is that this is the right decision for our company, for our people, for our business. If anyone's interested in learning how how we went about it, we are more than willing to share our experiences as generously as we possibly can. However, we don't necessarily uh, prescribe that everyone should be moving to this model if it doesn't work for them, but it does work for us. You've been on both sides of culture improvement as an advisor and now the person responsible for that. I don't know that there's a a lot of restaurants probably with a head of culture, but do you think it's important for companies to have a person whose full-time job is is managing culture? You know, uh, I would say that regardless of what the title is, it should be someone's responsibility to ensure that the behaviors throughout the company are aligned with the values and intentions. And the way that we think about culture at USHG, obviously it is a shared responsibility. So I have culture in my title, but it is in no way my singular responsibility Um because it, it is the culmination of everyone's behaviors and interactions on a daily basis. So everyone's contributing to the, the culture. There's anyone that works for us is not a bystander they, to our culture. They are a contributor. And the way that we think about it, at least on my team and traditional uh, human resources does report in through me, is that culture is like a ever flowing, fast moving river. And it is constantly moving, constantly evolving. And our responsibility is to put in the riverbanks and uh, lead the river to where we want it to go. And so that's how we think about the body of work that we lead in order to ensure that the culture is embodying the things that we say matter to us in terms of our values. So I do believe 
that there should be someone at every organization who is thinking about advancing the culture and, and putting in those riverbanks in an intentional and thoughtful way in every organization. Otherwise, I think there has the opportunity to be a disconnect between, again, that intention and the experience. I don't know. I think that's very, very wise advice. So having survived uh, hospitality included, what, what traditional paradigm are, are you and Danny looking to tackle next? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't have a spoiler alert for you at this point. <laughs> Maybe in a future podcast, we'll have something to talk about. But <laughs> All right. I figure there's got to be something that's on the, on, on the radio. You're, you're like, I'm not done. We're, we're not through this one yet. <laughs> yep. We're, we're always cooking up something. So. Well, one thing, one thing you did, you, you helped implement a significant parental leave policy yeah. for employees. Mm-hmm. Well. What, what drove um, the push for that change? You know, it was a lot of conversations uh, with uh, new parents that under the old policy that were just explaining what their struggles and their experiences were. So we just stopped and we said, let's just look at this program and just challenge ourselves to offer the most generous program that we are prepared to offer. And so we went from a program that was triggered based on tenure, meaning you didn't get access to it until you'd been with us for a number of years. And it was targeted mainly towards a birth mother. And we thought, well, hey, you know, if you have to work with us for a significant period of time, if you choose to join us later on in life, right, and, and then start your family shortly thereafter, have we boxed you out of this opportunity? Yeah. And then we thought, well, wait a second, birth mothers, like don't fathers have a responsibility to be there? Don't we want them to have an opportunity to be there? And then we said, well, wait a second, what about the adoption of a child, right? So same-sex couples or maybe just an individual adopting someone. We said, so let's just make it fully expansive and say that it is for the birth or adoption of a child. And then let's look and offer this not just to our salaried employees, but to our hourly employees, which was uh, damn near impossible to create a business case for, because at least with salaried employees, you have, you know, it's a fixed expense. (laughs) And we had no idea what the the, uh, financial impact would be. And that's also going back to your question earlier about Danny and his commitment, you know, there's no ROI that you can really put around this because A, we weren't quite sure how many people were going to choose to expand their families. Yeah. So we couldn't really come up with the expense, nor could we really do a direct correlation for retention. We just knew it was the right thing to do. And Danny said, well, then, damn it, we're going to do it. And that's why also going back to your question about if there's not leadership commitment at the top, you know, had I taken this to a CEO who wasn't committed, I would have probably been stuck in like analysis paralysis trying to create an ROI. And, you know, thankfully in in my world, you know, Danny just said, damn it, it's the right thing to do. So we're going to do it. And you did. That's great. And, and yeah, I think you guys are clearly living, living your values and, and making, you know, decisions that may not be, they're not profitable in the first rung of that circle, but with the hope that they lead back to better retention, better financial returns and helping all of the stakeholders. Yeah. And just to be clear, you know, I'm kind of describing um, a nirvana of sorts, probably with my with my explanation. We are not perfect. We absolutely have opportunities that we challenge ourselves to address every single day. Um, However, 
we do have a passionate commitment to our values, um, to continuing to get better and to that virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality. So I wouldn't want anyone listening to think like, oh, you know, they're perfect. They don't have any challenges. We definitely have flaws and opportunities <laughs> that we're actively, we're actively working on. Well, that is a perfect segue into my last question, which is, and this could be a singular or repeated for a lot of people, but what's a personal or professional mistake that you've learned the most from? Oh, you know, uh, it's kind of one that falls in both categories. Um, so I was a, a mid-level manager and I was going through a lot uh, personally. I was in the process of going through a divorce. I had a one and a three-year-old and I did not share any of that with anyone at work. I just wanted to be perceived as a professional and didn't want to bring any of my outside challenges into the work. And, you know, I just wanted to keep those two worlds very, very separate. And I had a team member who was struggling with something really, really painful and who didn't reach out for my support. And she only told me about it after she had gone through this really, really challenging situation. And I said to her, why didn't you come to me? I could have helped. Like I, and I would have been honored to have supported you through this process. And she said, how could you understand my world? Everything in your life is perfect. And I never thought that someone like you would understand what I was struggling with. And I said, what do you mean I'm perfect? And she said, you know, you, everything that you present about your life is, it just seems so beautiful and idealistic. And I was like, oh my God, I have unintentionally sent the message that I don't have any chinks in my armor. I was trying to protect people from, you know, the darker side of my life. And unfortunately, what I had done was um, sent this message that I was unapproachable or not vulnerable or wasn't making mistakes. And obviously, there's a line that you shouldn't cross in terms of divulging too much information in the workplace. But that, that mistake that I made, that, that moment helped me to realize that I need to bring my vulnerability and my humanity into my leadership. Um, because if I wasn't doing that, I didn't have a shot in hell of helping my team members unlock their potential. And so I'd say that that was a pretty defining moment uh, in terms of my own growth and development. That's a great story. And I think one that can help a lot of people. So, so thank you for sharing that vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, how can people find more about you, Union Square Hospitality Group, or maybe I'm guessing there might be some people now who want a job. Uh, where, 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 where do they go look? <laughs> um, yeah. So um, they can go onto our website, which is ushgnyc.com. You can also reach me at emoran, M-O-R-A-N, at ushgnyc.com. And uh, find out more information about us. And we would love for people to join our company. So um, please reach out. Sounds like a good place to work. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing you'll, you'll have some. Well, Aaron, thanks for sharing your story with us. You've no brought problem. a lot of creativity and humanity to the Thank company you. culture. And, Thank uh, you so much. Both you and Danny have set a great example for other companies and leaders to follow. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Anytime. We'll have you back when, when you tell us what that next initiative is. <laughs> Will do. Sounds great. So to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to uh, Aaron and the company information on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. 
quick favor. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and the content that you've been enjoying. If you're listening today on Apple Podcasts, you can just select the library icon, click on Elevate, and scroll down to the bottom to leave your review. That's it. It's that easy, I promise. Thank you again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.